Well, welcome to this evening's uh, Gresham Lecture. As you've perhaps already discovered, uh, we have temporarily suspended in-person attendance at our lectures, and uh, I'm giving my talk this evening to an empty room with a camera. Um, we're going to live stream as many of our lectures as we can, so do check our website, just to remind you, that's gresham.ac.uk. Uh, for the latest information that will explain exactly what our plans are. And of course, don't forget, uh, as well as the live streamed lectures, we have a massive archive of lectures and all sorts of fascinating subjects which you can watch. Well, my lectures this year have rather accidentally turned out to be very topical because I've been looking at what happens when normal patterns of life are disrupted by unexpected and uncontrollable events. Uh, but in particular, I've been looking at how the Stuart monarchy managed to carry on ruling, or perhaps better, attempting to rule, during the twists and turns of the complicated and sometimes bloody politics of the 17th century. My focus, of course, is buildings, the buildings in which these monarchs lived and ruled, and how those buildings helped to shape events and shape the monarchs themselves. And tonight, I'm taking up the story more or less where I left it last time. In my last lecture, I described the extraordinary court, temporary court, that Charles I established first at Oxford and then later on the Isle of Wight. But tonight, I'm going to turn and look at what happened to his son, Charles Prince of Wales, who, of course, became Charles II. Well, for three years during the period I was discussing in my last lecture, Prince Charles was kept very closely by his father's side. But in early 1645, the king became very concerned that they both might be captured. And he decided that his now increasingly independent 15-year-old heir should take his own command in the royalist army. The prince was placed in nominal control of Bristol and of the royalist forces in the west of England. But before he really even had a chance to influence events at all, the king's army was all but wiped out at the Battle of Naseby, and now, virtually unstoppable, the new model army took the west of England. In March 1646, realising that he was in imminent danger of being taken, Charles sailed for the Scilly Islands and then fled to the safety of Jersey. Now, thanks to the loyalty and determination of Sir George Carteret, uh, Jersey's bailiff, um, the island had been recaptured from the parliamentarian uh, forces and was holding out the king. In 1594, to defend the island against possible Spanish invasion, a new fort had been built on a tidal spit guarding, guarding St. Helier. This uh, was Elizabeth Castle, as it became known, named after the Queen, and it contained the house of the governor of Jersey, built in around 1600, 1600 for Sir Walter Raleigh, who then occupied the post. 
And this really was as close as Jersey got to having a royal residence. For three months, Prince Charles, with his swelling household, were based in this Elizabethan fort. Now, the castle, as I think you can see, has a spectacular location, made even more impressive at high tide when the castle appears to be on an island. This uh, illustration uh, is one by Wenceslas Holler, taken really more, more or less exactly the time that uh, Charles, uh, Prince of Wales, was living there. And you can see that it had a, a high point where there was a keep, which was essentially a, a, a gun platform. And just below that was the house of the governor. And in the lower bailey here, there was the remains of St. Helier's uh, um, Abbey, uh, which uh, was a, a ruined, a dissolved uh, church, which was, um, in fact, converted by the royalists um, into a chapel. So Charles arrived with 300 or so household officers, uh, his council, his guards, and a great train of suppliers and craftsmen, people like his tailor and his shoemaker, and they were all crammed into this area here, the lower ward, and some of them hired houses in um, St. Helier uh, itself. Uh, the governor's house, um, which still survives, uh, was a substantial building. It had a cellar, two floors above. And here's my colleague, uh, Dr. Rol um, Rodwell's reconstruction of the building as it was in Charles, uh, Charles's time. So on the ground floor, uh, there was a, a great hall uh, with a kitchen at one end and a parlour for receiving people. And this is, we think, where the guards, the royal guards, uh, were stationed. And then there were stairs which led upstairs to uh, a bedchamber uh, and two antechambers, which uh, were presumably used for audiences and other such activities. Charles had arrived uh, in uh, three ships, and one of them contained all the paraphernalia of majesty. And so he was able to hang the rooms in this uh, building with tapestry and set it out with fine furniture. And while he was not uh, enjoying yachting in the bay, which he was very keen on, he dined in public in his parlour on the ground floor here, eating off uh, gold plate and uh, holding receptions for the island gentry. Uh, the uh, Priory Church uh, was used for his uh, Sunday services. They lined it with whitewashed uh, planks of wood, which they then covered in tapestry to make it quite grand. There was a pulpit. Uh, there was a raised choir, which contained the royal pew. On occasions, uh, the king processed to the parish church in St. Helier to um, uh, hold services which were uh, grander and more public. Well, in the middle um, of June, a high-powered delegation arrived in Jersey uh, from Henrietta Maria, his mother, of course, uh, insisting that Charles should join her in France. It had become very clear that the Scots uh, were not declaring for Charles I, but actually holding him under guard. And after some heated debate, it was agreed that it was best for the prince and his mother to be reunited. Although 
uh, Prince Charles sailed away from Jersey in July 1646, imagining perhaps he was bidding the island uh, farewell, he was actually to return in September 1649 after the execution of his father. His second visit, and you see uh, him here on the screen, this is the age at which he was. He was um, in his late teens, and his early uh, 20s. Uh, he was accompanied by the Duke of York and, again, his 300 followers. But, of course, this time he was king and he welcomed the islanders as king and he held court uh, at Elizabeth Castle. He arrived with three coaches, uh, with his horses, uh, with lots of wagons full of furnishings. And his uh, house, the governor's house, was once again transformed uh, into a residence, but this time the residence of a king. Here, for the first time, he exercised his monarchical powers for touching for the king's evil, the curing of the disease uh, scrofula in the castle chapel. Uh, he hunted, he hawked, he found time to draw a map of the island, he was entertained by many of the gentry, and he held a great party in the governor's house for the Duke of York's birthday. But it wasn't a very happy visit. Money was incredibly short. Supplies from overseas were uh, strangled by the parliamentarian uh, navy uh, and bad weather. And the court became very uh, shabby, became very fractious and very demoralized as winter drew in. Um, on the 30th of January, 1650, the court commemorated the execution of Charles I, the first anniversary in the parish church in St. Helier, uh, the church completely draped in black cloth. A fortnight later, Charles departed for the last time, and the following year, in the face of a determined assault by uh, uh, Cromwell's forces, uh, Carteret surrendered the island and the final royal uh, toehold uh, fell to the parliamentarians. Well, Henrietta Maria had arrived in France in the summer of 1644 with four boatloads of attendants. Her brother, who was King Louis XIII of France, had died the previous year, and her nephew, the four-year-old Louis XIV had succeeded him. Uh, Louis, of course, was too young to rule, and his Spanish mother, Anne of Austria, took the regency, assisted by her first uh, minister, Cardinal Mazarin, who was also, uh, by the way, her lover. Central Paris, you see it here at the period, uh, in the 1640s, was really the product of the visionary ambition of Louis XIV's grandfather, Henry IV, who ruled from uh, 1589 until he was assassinated in 1610. Uh, Henry IV had been responsible for bringing to an end the French wars of religion, and he'd entered Paris in 1594 with the determination to make the city the locus of the monarchy and visibly the capital of France. 
Uh, for two centuries previously, French monarchs had paid lip service to Paris as their capital. They hadn't really lived there. But uh, Henry decided to uh, make it visibly a capital once again. So he uh, is responsible for building the Place Royale, uh, now, of course, they're called the Place de Vosges, um, the Place Dauphine, um, the Hospital of St. Louis. Uh, these were great public works, which really transformed the centre of Paris. He also uh, tran transformed the Louvre, the ancient seat of the French crown. In the 16th century, uh, French monarchs had started to improve the forbidding medieval fortress and turn it into a modern palace. But the project was incomplete and the Louvre had never become the principal residence of the French crown in the way that Whitehall had in, um, in England. And so in 1594, it was a shabby and incoherent compromise. Only one quarter of the main building had been rebuilt. So this is the main building here. Uh, the one quarter that had been rebuilt uh, in the beginning of Henry IV's reign is this bit here. The rest of this around here was essentially a medieval um, palace. Um, what uh, Henry did was uh, he uh, joined uh, by the means of um, uh, enormous gallery here, uh, the Louvre itself with the palace of the Queen, which was called the Tuileries, which is this palace here. Um, and he also built one other quarter of the central uh, court. So by the time that he died, you have half a modernized court, and this enormous gallery linking it to the Queen's uh, palace of the um, Tuileries. Uh, but when he died, uh, the uh, place was still essentially a building site. You can see it here, here are the Tuileries, the Long Gallery, and the Louvre itself, uh, which, as I say, was still uh, only half built. So in October um, 1643, just uh, five months after Louis XIII had died, Anne of Austria and her two young sons moved out of the Louvre, this building site, and nearby was the great townhouse constructed by Louis XIII's chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, uh, which you see here. This elegant modern res residence had actually been given to Louis XIII by uh, Richelieu and had been renamed the Palais Royal. And it now became the home of the Queen Regent and the toddler king, uh, Louis XIV. And so what this meant was that when Henrietta Maria arrived in France in November 1644, the Louvre was empty, and Anne uh, presented uh, uh, Henrietta Maria with the Queen's apartments in the Louvre to be her Parisian residence. Henrietta Maria was no stranger to the Louvre. She had been born there. Uh, and so when Anne of Austria ceremonially escorted her to the cabinet of her apartment, these are the rooms here in the half-built Louvre. You can see the, the medieval bit here, the modern bit here, the, the, the gallery joining on here, which I'll talk about in a moment. Into these rooms here, she was essentially coming um, home. Um, she was given a generous uh, uh, settlement because, of course, Henrietta Maria 
was not only the daughter, the sister, and the now, now the aunt of the King of France. Uh, so she was uh, extremely uh, you know, closely connected with the French royal family. She was given uh, an allowance of 360,000 livres uh, a year. And as well as this apartment in the Louvre, she was given uh, her childhood home at Saint-Germain-en-Laye uh, outside uh, Paris. So when Prince Charles arrived in Paris and joined his mother with his small retinue and his personal baggage in July 1646, he uh, arrived at the Louvre. Uh, although he was half French, his grasp of the language was weak, and of course he had never been to France uh, before. There was a great uh, crisis of etiquette in the French court. Exactly how should they treat uh, a Prince of Wales? The English argued that he should be given equality with King Louis XIV, who you see here um, as a child. Uh, this is more or less the age he was at this point. Um, but what was agreed in the end, and this is a typical sort of 17th century uh, royal fudge, was that uh, the, uh, Louis XIV and the Prince of Wales should meet by chance in their carriages in the forest outside Fontainebleau. They met, um, and uh, they, he was then escorted back to the chateau at Fontainebleau, where he spent uh, three days. Um, and by coincidence, he was placed uh, at the right hand of the boy king. And in fact, during his entire time, many, many years staying in France, these issues of etiquette were never formally resolved, perhaps uh, to advantage uh, of, the, of both sides. So Paris and its environs were Charles's home for nearly uh, two years. His mother's pension was increased uh, in order to uh, take account of Charles's presence, and he was assigned lodgings in the Louvre near um, his uh, mother. Paris was the most fashionable city in Europe. It was the place to learn manners, the place to learn how to dance, to know how to ride properly, and Charles completely immersed himself in its culture and its manners. At first, he even maintained a company of English players to uh, provide entertainment for the exiled uh, royalists. But even after they'd been disbanded in 1646, the English court uh, staged elaborate masks um, at the Louvre in the new year. But as well as theatrical entertainments, he enjoyed uh, going to uh, the French theatre, promenading in the summer months in the royal gardens. He hunted, he attended court ceremonies, um, and uh, really took uh, the maximum advantage of the social life of, um, of, the, of the city. Now, a few moments ago, I characterized the Louvre in 1594 as a shabby compromise. But by the time Charles came to live there in the 1640s and again in the 1650s, it had been much improved uh, by first Henry IV and then Louis XIII. Um, the Petit Galerie, which is this little one here, that led to the Grand Galerie, which is the one along the river uh, here, uh, you see in this uh, engraving. 
and I think looked at by the English exiles, its exterior must have seemed very much like a, a Jacobean building. Richly decorated with these rusticated arcade at the bottom, uh, lots of sculpture on it. Um, it must have been uh, fairly familiar. But this little gallery led to the colossal 422-metre-long Grande Galerie that linked the Louvre and the Tuileries. Uh, from the river, it looked broadly uh, symmetrical, but the um, eastern half, which was built first, had quite a sort of busy and crowded facade, but the western half was much more confidently monumental, uh, with giant pilasters supporting um, alternate uh, segmental and, uh, uh, and pediments um, along the top um, here. So this was very, very grand and quite unlike anything uh, that was built in England at that time, either in scale, you can just see how enormous it is, or in style. The King's and Queen's apartments were uh, on the riverside. The shell remains uh, as part of the Louvre Museum today. You can go and see it. The internal organisation has almost completely gone. But we have a plan. And you can see from this plan that this wasn't the grand parade of rooms that we uh, envisage the, uh, from Louis XIV living in from visiting Versailles. This was a much more compact and confusing plan, a series of rooms uh, focused on the Chambre de Parade, the largest, most important room in a French royal house. So three big rooms uh, belonging to Louis XIV um, uh, and the, the Queen's apartments on this side. These were the apartments that Henrietta Maria were, 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 were living in. And in the um, Chambre de Parade, there was uh, an alcove, and in the alcove, there was a state bed. And in French royal etiquette, it was in front of this bed and this alcove which uh, uh, the audiences and the main court ceremonial uh, happened. Now, Prince Charles left uh, France for the United Provinces in mid-July 1648. Just to remind you, at this stage, the Low Countries were divided into two. In the north, you had the Protestant Republic, the United Provinces, and in the south, you had the Catholic um, Spanish Netherlands, part of the Habsburg um, Empire. And it was to the northern Protestant Republic that uh, Charles uh, went in 1648. Um, and there he joined his sister Mary, the Princess Royal, who had, of course, married uh, William II, Prince of Orange. Here is their marriage portrait. And uh, Prince Charles was received royally in the Binnenhof, in the Hague, it's still there, by the States General, the, the, the Parliament. Um, and they awarded him a pension and assigned him a house, uh, which was reserved normally for foreign ambassadors. But a few days later, uh, his sister and brother-in-law invited him into a fine suite of rooms in the Binnenhof uh, itself. Um, so lodged in comfort and dignity, 
uh, three of Charles I's children now held a war conference as what, uh, what to do next, because it seemed uh, to them as if the Scots would form an army under Prince Charles's leadership to invade England, uh, and they uh, were blessed by the fact that it seemed to them that the English fleet had now uh, declared for the king and would um, support this invasion, uh, and, and in fact, was, uh, it was moored off the um, Dutch coast. So the rest of the summer and the autumn were uh, set in, in, uh, in sorting out this invasion, uh, but whilst all this was going on, the devastating news arrived in The Hague on February the 4th that the king had been beheaded and that the Prince of Wales was now Charles II. William and Mary immediately recognised him as sovereign, uh, 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 which was a gesture that um, recognised that he, as uh, King of England and uh, Scotland, outranked his hosts. He was given new apartments suitable to his sovereignty, and when he dined, he was now given his own, own table and waited on uh, hand and foot. This is a remarkable painting showing Charles II in Bruges, actually, at the end of his exile, but you can see him here being treated as king, as he was um, in The Hague, um, after his father's execution. Well, um, my lectures this year are about the interaction of the Stuart monarchs and the buildings in which they lived in extraordinary circumstances. And um, I am not going to cover the 15 months that uh, Charles spent in Scotland, where he was hastily crowned King of Scots, not going to cover his reckless dash into England that uh, resulted in the rout of his ramshackle army by Oliver Cromwell at the Battle of Worcester, because throughout the whole of that time, he was essentially spending his time in military encampments. In Scotland, he did stay in some of his ancestral homes in the palaces at Dunfermline, Falkland and Stirling, but he had a very unhappy relationship with uh, the Scots lords and the Puritans. And when he arrived back in Paris, exhausted, defeated, humiliated, and penniless in October 1651, he said of Scotland that there was not a woman to talk to and that the barbarism of men was such that they thought it a sin to play the violin. The Paris to which Charles uh, returned in 1651 was a very different city to the one which he had left in 1648. Because just as events in England in 1648 were reaching their crisis with Charles I imprisoned by Parliament, so Paris was primed to explode in violent demonstrations against the arbitrary power of the, the French crown. The series of conflicts that ensued between court and country between 1648 in 1653, and known as the Fronde, had two effects on the exiled Stuart royal family. First of all, it gnawed away at Henrietta Maria's pension. 
payments became irregular and then almost dried up. In fact, it was reported in November 1651 that Charles and Henrietta Maria were, and I quote, keeping a very spare house and having but one table and that indifferently furnished. But secondly, it caused the French court to flee from Paris, bizarrely leaving Henrietta Maria as the sole representative of the French royal family in the Louvre. In fact, at one point, a furious Parisian mob besieged her in the Louvre, complaining that she was ruining France in the same way that she had already ruined England. Well, when Anne of Austria and uh, Louis XIV returned to Paris at the end of the Fronde in October 1652, they moved back into the Louvre, which they regarded as a much safer place, after all it was a medieval fortress, than the Palais Royal. And the English exiles were um, turfed out of the Louvre and given the Palais Royal instead. Uh, the Palais Royal uh, was, uh, and I've shown you this picture before, I'll show you it again, it was destroyed by fire, tragically, in 1763. Tragically, because its builder, Cardinal Richelieu, was the greatest architectural patron of his age, and this uh, Parisian mansion was the most spectacular residence in Paris. His architect was Jacques Le Mercier, who was forced to design this building piecemeal as Richelieu gradually brought, bought up plots of neighbouring land in the densely packed streets close to the Louvre. In the end, the building sprawled over eight courtyards, overlooked a huge garden, which you can see at the back here, uh, and contained uh, a 3,000-seat theatre in this wing at the front. It was perhaps always intended by Richelieu to be a royal residence because uh, uh, in 1636 he presented it to Louis XIII and when Louis XIII took it over it already contained two suites of royal lodgings as if for a monarch and a consort. Here is a plan of it drawn in the 18th century uh, after later alterations. And we know that um, Henrietta Maria took this magnificent suite here, which was known as the Summer Apartments, had some very big grand external rooms and then some private rooms uh, uh, out here overlooking the garden. They were immensely richly decorated. Uh, here is a chimney piece um, from one of these uh, rooms. Uh, we don't know for certain where Charles II was, but it is 99% certain that he occupied, he was a king after all, uh, the king's apartments on this side. And the king's apartments were essentially T-shaped. There were some external chambers here, uh, antechambers, and then there was a range up here which led to the king's private bedchamber and his chapel, and a range going this side of the T which led to the Chambre de Parade, which was the uh, principal reception room. And uh, between them, this gallery here, which was the, the gallery of illustrious men. 
uh, which stood at the junction between public and private, if you like. And these, uh, this gallery, this r remarkable um, uh, gallery, uh, contained a series of paintings. And of course, uh, Richelieu painted himself, this is an engraving of it, uh, as one of the illustrious men um, in that um, gallery. There's no image of any of those rooms, but uh, we know that the Chambre de Parade did have one of these bed alcoves that I showed you in the Louvre. This is an engraving by Jean Le Potre of exactly this period. And you can see the bed, the rail here, the bed behind, um, and people uh, uh, standing outside looking at the ceremonial um, bed itself. Well, the Stuart royal family uh, relocated to their um, elegant new home. But elegance was apparently in short supply. In his play, Tommaso or the Wanderer, Thomas Killigrew, the Stuart poet, calls the Palais Royal a coney warren filled with cavaliers of all trades. And notes, and I quote, they eat so seldom and dung so small, you may as soon step in a custard tart as a turd in the court. Two Dutch brothers, clearly pretty hostile to the royalist cause, claim that the ragbag of impoverished royalist exiles camping in the Palais Royal had almost destroyed it, shaving the gilding off the gallery walls to make coins and picking the lead out of windows to sell. The financial uh, accounts surviving for Charles's court shows that he was periodically able to pay for his bedchamber servants and his stable, but plentiful correspondence shows that he was completely unable to fulfill the expectations of the large numbers of cavaliers that hung around the court who wanted pensions, offices, and honours. Indeed, there were occasions when the king himself had to eat in private taverns rather than at his own table. Nevertheless, for the next three years, Charles II lived at the Palais Royal, the most fashionable building in France, not as an English prince, but as the crowned king of Scotland. Despite the acute lack of cash, the young English monarch made uh, the most of his time in the city. A deficiency of evidence makes it hard to know precisely what he did every day, but we know that he went hawking in the winter, hunting in the summer, he swam in the, uh, in the river, he played tennis very enthusiastically, he played billiards, he danced, he drank, he gambled at cards, and he had, of course, a small number of love affairs getting into practice for his favourite occupation when he became king. In uh, December 1653, after uh, a season of masks and plays at court, Charles was able to throw a dinner for Louis XIV, a compliment that was then returned by the king. And this is a wonderful image of um, a court mask taking place at the Louvre um, in the 1650s at exactly the time that Charles II was living there. Well, lodged in the Palais Royal, uh, court etiquette prevailed, and uh, Charles received ambassadors, 
Uh, he was served by his bedchamber servants. And as far as we can tell, uh, he received people in his bedchamber, uh, in the Chambre de Parade, in the French manner, suggesting that he had, in fact, adopted French court etiquette uh, as a standard procedure rather than the English etiquette, which would have seen him receive people in a presence chamber rather than his bedchamber. Well, in 1654, everything changed. William II of Orange uh, suddenly died of smallpox, aged only 26. In November uh, 1650, um, he had died, but uh, this, of course, robbed Charles of his ally in the United Provinces. And at the same time, uh, Mazarin was negotiating a treaty with Cromwell, who had now been made Lord Protector, and this would inevitably lead to Charles's expulsion from France. Meanwhile, Charles uh, had hopes that the German princes uh, might support him financially, and so it was time to move. Mazarin, very keen to get uh, the exiled court off French soil, even provided a cash grant to allow Charles and his baggage train to leave uh, Paris in suitable splendor. Via Aachen in Germany, where in the cathedral Charles admired the bones of Charlemagne, Charles arrived at Cologne in August 1654. To his surprise, he received a warm civic welcome. He rented a large mansion, uh, and you see uh, Cologne here uh, on the screen as it looked in 1613. And this city was to be his home for the next 18 months. During the Second World War, uh, three quarters of Cologne was destroyed by bombing, and there is no longer any trace of where King Charles uh, lived. But his residence in the city, I think, wasn't uh, important for its architecture, because whilst Charles's stay at the court of France was to exercise a huge influence on his taste, his experiences in Cologne were of a different kind. Not required to maintain a rank at a competitive court, as he was uh, forced to do in Paris, he was able, more or less, to live within his means. Although money was chronically short, his outgoings were reduced, and the cash that arrived in fits and spurts enabled him to live uh, the life of a distinguished aristocrat. He spent his time perfecting his French and Italian, also perfecting various courtly dances that he was very keen on. He hunted. He went on brisk walks round the city walls. He was very keen on, uh, keen on that. He swam in the River Rhone. And in late September 1655, with a group of companions, he went from Cologne to Frankfurt for the Winter Fair. They travelled most of the way on the River Main in a huge barge, dragging behind them two subsidiary barges to carry their luggage. It was all huge fun, but it was ruinously expensive. So all this time in Cologne, he was forced to live a life far more informal 
than he ever had done before. As far as can be ascertained, there were no formal rooms of state in the houses in which he lived. A few stray financial accounts show that he named the rooms in these houses presence chamber, withdrawing chamber, bedchamber, closet. But uh, in these rooms, he received uh, uh, people unostentatiously, although probably quite ceremoniously. In 1655, the diplomatic tables of Europe were again reset. England and Spain were now at war, and Mazarin concluded his treaty with the English, including a clause that banned Charles from France permanently. The Spanish Empire still consisted territory in Iberia, uh, in the Netherlands and Italy, um, and with both the United Provinces and France clo close to Charles II, the Spanish Netherlands were the only feasible place from which he could try and organise a seaborne invasion of uh, England in an attempt to regain his kingdom. And to secure this, in May 1656, he entered into treaty negotiations with the governor of the Spanish Netherlands, who you see here. The Spanish, as ever, obsessed with the regularity of behavior and correct form, wouldn't acknowledge Charles publicly, nor even accommodate him in their headquarters in Brussels. He was therefore assigned lodgings in Bruges. Now, you and I would be absolutely delighted to be assigned lodgings in Bruges, which you see in this wonderful uh, map by Marcus Gearhartz here, with the public buildings uh, highlighted. Um, we admire it for its beauty and its quirky charm. But then it was a remote backwater of the Spanish Empire. It was, in fact, the last place that Charles, who was used to the high life of Paris and to living in huge modern palaces, wanted to be in. Uh, although uh, the king was theoretically in receipt of a pension, uh, the Spanish uh, actually paid the money uh, very uh, um, irregularly and his financial uh, troubles remained acute. His official household still uh, numbered 156 people. So all these people had to be paid the whole time, and he really had no income. And uh, about half of these people uh, were uh, an inner core who he really had complete financial responsibility from. This was a huge drain on his resources. When Charles II arrived in Bruges in April 1656, the Marquis of Ormond complained to Secretary Nicholas, and I quote, that the king is in no sort provided of a house. And indeed, he had to be lodged temporarily in the home of a fellow um, exile, uh, the, uh, the Irish peer, Lord Tara. Um, and uh, um, Nicholas said he was lodged with trouble to the Lord and some great inconveniency to himself. Uh, other members of the royal household were scattered uh, throughout the town. The king complained that houses, lodgings and furniture are had with more difficulty here than they are in Cologne. 
But soon a house was found large enough for the king and his close attendants. And uh, my wife and I spent a very jolly day in Bruges trying to find this house. And here it is on the left-hand screen. There's a painting of it on the right. This is the house he first stayed in. It's a shop. We blagged our way in and blagged our way up the stairs. It's quite a modest place. Um, he had to hire uh, furniture and fittings before he could take possession. The rooms in this very modest house were given traditional names. Uh, the financial accounts mention fire tongs being bought for the presence chamber. I wonder what that was like, quite a modest room. Lights for the drawing room, for the closet and the bedchamber. There was no chapel, but there was a special room set aside as a prayer room. In January uh, 1659, he moved to a new house, uh, which he rented for a thousand florins for six months. Now, we know where this one is. This house um, is right in the centre of the town here. And um, here is an image of it. Um, he uh, hired hangings for his presence chamber, for his privy chamber and his, in his eating room. Uh, he hired these hangings, these tapestries, for nine months at the cost of 346 florins. Uh, but for his bedchamber, he had new hangings made. He even had a painting lent to him uh, to hang over the chimney piece in his presence chamber. We found this house also, which is looking rather sad and worst for wear. We couldn't get into it because it was a building site. Um, an agreement reached over the next year. Charles, with a royalist army of several thousand men, started to engage in fighting on the French border with the Spanish against the French and the English. He personally moved to Brussels to be near the centre of things, but money problems remained acute, and his planned assault on England was still born. Worse still, Cromwell's troops, uh, fighting with the French, routed both Charles's uh, royalist army and the Spanish in a a series of set-piece battles and stages. And just as everything looked as if it was lost, and Charles was considering trying to make a new arrangement with the United Provinces, Oliver Cromwell died. What happened next belongs to another story. But the gist, as you know, is that Charles was invited back to England, where, in 1660, he was restored to the throne. But I hope this evening to have provided uh, an insight into where, for a considerable period, 15 years in fact, uh, where Charles II lived. There is no doubt that his long and actually essentially very enjoyable stay in Paris made an enormous impact. For the rest of his life, he was enamoured with French fashions, in furniture, in dress, in music, in theatre, in literature, in architecture. But equally important, and this is an extremely important point, was the fact that at the Restoration, those people who reaped the largest rewards and the, the ones who were um, given the most important positions were the people who had endured the privations of exiles with him. Almost everybody 
who had stuck by the king over those 15 years, got a place at court and a financial reward to match. And what this meant was that all the people closest to the king had an intimate experience of the continent and in particular of life in Paris at the French court. French taste was then not just the prerogative of the king in 1660, but it infused the culture of the entire ruling class. And this is a fundamental and thoroughgoing change in taste that influenced uh, all branches of restoration culture. Now, we do have to remember that there was uh, French influence and quite a bit of it at court uh, in the 1630s, especially uh, at Henrietta Maria's court and in her apartments at Denmark House. And in fact, during the Commonwealth and Republic, there were items of French furniture in use in the royal palaces uh, occupied uh, by Oliver Cromwell. But Charles II immediately signalled a complete change in court taste in 1660. The court upholsterer, for instance, uh, who was the man who was responsible for providing seat furniture and beds, as well as curtains and other soft furnishing for the royal houses, was an old royal servant, John Baker. He'd held the post for 40 years. Within weeks of the restoration, he was required to walk alongside Jean Casbert, uh, a French upholsterer who came over with the king. We don't know anything much about Casbert's background, but he had learnt his trade in Louis XIII's Paris. In fact, uh, the very first furnishing accounts of the restoration show that Jean Casbert was paid for altering and fitting up a crimson damask bed bought off a Frenchman. The Princess Royal was at the same time supplied with a standing French bedstead. And here is uh, one of those French beds. This is one that was supplied uh, to James, Duke of York, uh, at the Restoration um, uh, and is now at Knoll House, belongs to the National Trust. You can go and see it, a remarkable survival this is exactly the sort of thing that was imported directly from Paris and put into the royal palaces in the 1660s. And these new beds were being installed, not in traditional English bedchambers, but in new French-style bedchambers. That is to say, bedrooms containing an elaborate alcove in which the bed was placed behind a rail. The Whitehall bedchamber was the first to be fitted out in this fashion. We've got no image of it, sadly, but we know from descriptions that it looked exactly like the ones in the French royal palaces where Charles had lived for so long. The floor of the Whitehall bedroom was even covered in parquet, the first instance of this French flooring uh, to be used anywhere in England. Equally important was the fact that with the architecture and furnishing of these uh, English royal bedrooms came the full arrival of French bedroom etiquette. Don't smile. I'm not talking about what went on in bed. What I'm talking about is the use of the bedroom as a uh, formal reception place for um, court occasions. And here you see the French court um, uh, with a formal reception going on in the presence of, um, a, uh, of a bed. 
And this is uh, um, uh, an introduction um, which uh, happens in 1660. Charles introducing the morning ceremony, the levee, in which he gets out of bed and gets dressed in the presence uh, of the court, and in the evening, the coucher, in which he reverses the process uh, and goes to bed, um, as it were, in public. And this is completely unlike the early Stuart practice um, in which the bedchamber was a private space. Charles II made it like a chambre de parade, uh, his principal, uh, the principal audience chamber that he had used in um, France. To maintain the setting of his court in French fashion, Charles began in 1660 to send his principal English artists to Paris to learn how to do things properly. And the most important of these trips, at least from an architectural point of view, was the one made by Sir Christopher Wren in 1669. Because Charles had decided to rebuild Tudor Whitehall Palace, and he wanted Wren to see the Louvre and to see the Palais Royal so that he knew how to build a new palace in the French taste. And he packed him off to France to look at uh, the Louvre, and here you see Louis XIII's uh, range at the Louvre, which um, uh, Wren was able to study close hand on the instructions of uh, the king. But actually, it wasn't particularly unusual sending Wren to Paris. Lots of other royal servants had been sent to France to learn French fashions. The composer, Humphrey Pelham, was sent to France to learn French musical composition. Thomas Betterton, the playwright and uh, empresario, travelled to Paris to consult French experts on the construction of theatres and how to um, structure plays. And John Bannister was sent to Paris to learn how to compose musicals. So tonight we have followed the travels and travails of an exiled monarch, from the rough-edged Elizabeth Castle in Jersey, through townhouses in Cologne and Bruges, to the Binnenhof in The Hague, the Cotenberg in Brussels, but most of all to Paris. And here Charles did what no other monarch had done since the Middle Ages. He lived in the court of another king for many years. The whole of his twenties was spent at the French court and his tastes were fundamentally formed there for the rest of his life. Sometimes it's said that Charles was following the tastes of Louis XIV and copying Versailles. But of course in the 1650s, Versailles was a small hunting lodge. Charles's taste was in fact molded by the tastes of Richelieu, Mazarin, and Louis XIII, and they remained with him for the whole of his life, and they had a huge impact on the arts uh, in late 17th century England. In my next lecture on the 10th of June, which I do hope um, I will be giving in person, uh, I will be looking at influences on Britain from a different country. We shall be taking a close look at the way the stadtholders of the United Provinces lived Important, of course, because one of them became King William III of England. Thank you very much and good night. <laughs>